This is Doing Good Through Food. I'm Alex Coffin, and my guest on the show today is Mark Jangle. Hi. Hello. Mark is the co-founder of Street Kitchen, uh, which served seasonal gourmet food at street food prices from mobile kitchens and fixed sites across London. Uh, and he's also the founder, um, more recently, of the Food Initiative, an organisation that supports sustainable farming practices. Mark describes himself as an environmentalist turned chef in high-end French restaurants, turned street food trader, turned entrepreneur. Uh, and he's passionate about the environmental impact of food through all those different roles that I just I just listed. He's he's approached the impact of food in, in a variety of different ways. So I really, I can't wait to hear what he has to say about it. Mark, it's a pleasure to say welcome to Doing Good Through Food. Thank you. Really excited to be, to be here. Hi. It's great to have you here. Chicken ice cream. Is it fair to say you've always been an adventurous chef? Yeah, I think I created chicken ice cream when I was about, must have been about 10 years old. My uncle challenged me to make, he was a bit of a joker, so he always was talking about chicken ice cream. And so one day we decided while everyone was having an amazing roast chicken, mm. that he would have to suffer the, the, uh, the product that was uh, chicken ice cream. Is it as good as it sounds? Uh, it's pretty awful, but I put a bit of time in there, so that kind of uh, helped it a little bit. <laughs> oh. So I, I wanted to just jump right in as, as we sort of the interview proper. The, the thing I really wanted to ask you about first is sourcing of food, because I think um, through all the initiatives, through all the, all the research that I've done, I think it comes across like that's something really, really important to you. Um, in, what, in the things that I read, it seemed like a pivotal point was, or it seemed to me, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, um, you were frustrated by a lack of information around um, around the environmental impact of the food that you were serving as a chef. So you, you left the kitchen, put on wellies and went to find out the facts. What what did that actually look like? What so basically, I was, um, I'd done an environmental science degree and part of my environmental science degree was meeting farmers as part of countryside management and understand the impact of farming on the land um and um when i uh so I'd, I'd done this degree wanted to do something in the environmental field and had always been a really passionate cook mm. or passionate about food at least and so one of the girls on the course on my environmental science course bought me a cookie cooking uh, course for like a six-week cooking course as a leaving present and I ended up doing this course and it's just in life one of those junctures where you just get taken off on a tangent and you actually think actually I'm quite good at this and I'm really enjoying this and that's how I started cooking and I went from being uh, I was meant to do a year and a half uh, cookery course at school but ended up leaving after I think it was about four months. Mm -hmm. And I went to work for one of the best kitchens in London, which was the two Michelin star restaurant, the square at the time. And I knew nothing. I was, you know, I, I was, I was in there at 6.30 every morning because I was so scared about not being ready for, for, for service. And all the other guys would come in at 7.30. And it was really just a baptism, baptism of fire. And I learned how to cook in, a, in an amazing environment over those two years. And, and one of the things I noticed was that, Although I was working in one of the best restaurants in town, 
the quality of the vegetables would really vary. So one day you'd eat a carrot and it would taste amazing and sweet. And another day you'd uh, try a carrot and it would, wouldn't really taste of much. Mm. And so I started to look into, okay, where are these carrots coming from? And I would ask the veg supplier and, and there was really a lack of information about, there was no connection between the farm and the way those that produce was being produced and the end user, which was the chef. And the way I had envisaged, uh, you know, being a really high-end chef is that you'd know where your vegetables come from and you'd have some relationship mm. with the farmer, <laughs> etc. So, and that's really kind of was the thing that planted a seed in my mind about at some point I'm going to have to explore this. Mm. So uh, finally, after I trained, worked as a head chef, worked as an executive chef, I then decided if I want to do my own food business, I am going to investigate this and work out how I can connect myself with the with the farmer, how I can understand how that produce is produced. And surely that's got to mean that actually on a very simple basis that you're going to get consistent quality. So you wouldn't have a carrot that tastes great one day and not great the next day because they're always coming out of the same field. So that was really the the massive inspiration for sticking on the wellies and going and meeting some farmers. And um, and and then the, the, the other side really was looking at farms and understanding animal welfare and uh, and understanding how animals were reared and how much intervention there was. So I, I wanted to buy from a system where they didn't intervene with hormones and chemicals and all this sort of stuff, mm. where the animal's own um, immune system was the thing that kept them healthy rather than actually intervention with, with chemicals and stuff. So when, when you were trying to sort of investigate where these things came from, you know, in the really early days, were you, who, who were you asking or who was it that you were talking to? Were they a sort of just a distributor of so it's quite of funny man. actually so i i uh, one of the first farms i went to visit was a farm called secrets farm down in surrey and at the time um i think i know, I know that actually. greg wallace on on uh you know who's the famous master chef um judge greg was uh, partners with with another guy called vernon and they were growing um baby leaf salad down in surrey at secrets and so i went down there just to check out this baby leaf salad and in the middle of the field i bumped into a guy called richard harding um and richard basically is the most amazing wealth of knowledge about all different farming systems and he is so passionate about sustainability um and it was just a real kind of chance meeting it's you know we started chatting and we didn't stop talking for about five hours uh, and our vision, our sort of ethos and vision was very aligned. And so Richard was the guy who basically took me on this journey mm. um, around all these different farms. And, you know, I'd say, I I would say to him, Richard, right, I want to learn about eggs today. How are we going to do that? And he would go, oh, okay, I know these three guys. Where should we go? And we would jump in a car and just go and visit. That's that's. Sounds like quite an education. That's, yeah, that's it was an, an amazing thing to do. Yeah, and he's very interesting because he had worked in all sides of, of agriculture and um, and rearing animals. So he'd seen the the what I would say is the bad side, the more industrial side, and he'd also seen the you know the the much more sustainable and um, 
careful side of of rearing and farming and actually he's a consultant so he would work for big companies uh, consulting on how they can improve you know their their processes mm-hmm. you know often to increase their yields and to become more you know efficient but but also he did a lot of he's done lots of research into soil health and its impact on on growing as well so really interesting guy really really interesting guy and he and you know we just happen to have this you know be very aligned and and he's he's now still look, working on lots of projects around um food waste and connecting restaurants and that sort of restaurants with um with farming uh, cooperatives so when back then um trying to find this information out you know, sort of where where this stuff is coming from were the were the farms always trying to sort of get that information through to restaurants do you what, what i found was that they were they absolutely loved the fact that you had taken the time to go and see them mm. and and often and what i found was actually those visits were the created the foundation for the future relationships which meant that because I think if I just called them up and said, can you supply me? It was quite difficult for some of them to supply me because it was, there weren't supply chain, there weren't supply chains or routes in place. We had to form and build them. And so I think the fact that, that you'd gone down, met them, really wanted to understand what they do, and you were passionate about understanding them and building a relationship meant that they went out of their way to try and supply you, which was really interesting. Did it... Um those sorts of conversations i mean were you i guess you're you're sort of investigating them but did did you find they sort of wanted to know as much about you would they yeah they would they would then come and visit you know one of the airstream trailers Mm. and they'd they'd want to come and eat on it and experience the other end of um the, the supply chain and and they they love the fact that you know we would talk about them to our customers so we would say we get for example there's an amazing cheese maker called Lyburn cheese and those guys um make a cheese called old winchester we wanted to do a pesto and we couldn't we wanted to use a, a british cheese rather than using parmesan mm. and so we went to taste this <laughs> old winchester and it was nice it was it was great cheese but it was wasn't quite strong enough so we said can you age this for another three months and let's taste it in three months' time, which he did for us. And then it was, and then it really had a, it was became a really, it had the personality of um, of of parmesan. So it was great in a pesto. And so for us, that was just an, uh, you know, if you're if you're in the daily grind of running a restaurant and you're placing your orders every night with a supplier, you just don't have the opportunity to have that connection to be able to say, can you please age that cheese for three three extra months for us because they don't know who you are to exactly sort of say. exactly yeah. so it was a really amazing experience and we we built quite an, a a lovely emotional relationship through that process mm. and um and that was that became quite um symptomatic of the relationships that we've built with different suppliers is that do you think it's, it's sort of um you know if somebody was starting out and trying to you know build these sorts of relationships for themselves or thinking that they maybe they you know already have a business and they want to improve them is is that the sort of would you always recommend that get out and and talk to the suppliers and sort of find out 
really what they what they can do, what they're all about. I mean, did, is that is that well, sort I of think, the place to start? I think so. I mean, if you are, if it's something that you're feeling inquisitive about, you know, there's nothing like um, there's nothing like when you receive a piece of meat, for example, in your mind, you you can visualize standing in the field where those chickens were grown and reared. You know exactly how they were reared. You know that they were reared with love, care and attention and no intervention with chemicals and all the sorts of stuff that industrial farming uses. And then you can be confident to use that piece of meat and cook with it. And you can be confident to then communicate that to your customers and say... Be proud of it. Yeah. And just if they ask, where's your... You know, I would often uh, get emails from people saying, where's your... um, Where's your meat from? And I was I would love sending them out uh, basically an A4 page with all the different suppliers. And, and, you know, they were always really surprised because I think people ask sometimes thinking because a lot of businesses will use a sustainability um, uh, uh, identity as a sort of marketing tool. Mm. Um and it's quite difficult to follow through on that for, to be really robust. So, you know, they were quite surprised to see, actually, yeah, these guys obviously do, you know, walk the walk as well as talking the talk because, you know, I can see, and if I contact these farms, they'll, you know, they'll say that we buy. So I think that that was really important to me to be able to communicate the information when someone asked. Mm-hmm. And, and, and ultimately originally one of the reasons why I wanted to do it was that if you were a consumer and you wanted and at at home you only bought meat that was ethically produced and directly from source we wanted to create a business where you could um, extend that sourcing policy into buying your lunch because most times you buy your lunch you just wouldn't be able to extend that into most businesses wouldn't be able to deliver that from a sourcing perspective. And that was quite, you know, I think that was quite compelling. Did you have to build that in when you, when you're having those conversations with, um, with the suppliers, you know, you, you've got the, these sustainability, ethical production ambitions, and you've, you've got sort of goals for, for sort of growth, for for sort of volume as well. Did you have to have those kind of conversations with the suppliers to sort of build in that strength in the supply chain so that you could scale, so that you could, so that you knew what, you know, what what kind of level you could take it to? Yeah, it's really hard, actually, to be honest. With with chicken, like the hardest thing, actually, was chicken legs because with pigs, for example, we would buy whole shoulders and it was quite easy for someone producing... Um, free-range ethically reared pigs to be able to pull off the shoulders and just sell them to you because all the parts of a pig quite easy to to sell on mm-hmm. um, but with a chicken it was it's particularly hard because the moment you break down a chicken into breasts and legs it, uh, as a farmer it's much harder to make money on it and so you have to know that but we, we were only using legs because of just the on in order to be consistent we would um we would we would brine and steam the legs for an hour and a half pull the bones out and then that that was a a really consistent delicious juicy piece of chicken we didn't use breasts because breasts are actually much harder to cook and keep Keep perfectly cooked and not not be dry 
So, um, so it was really hard to get enough chicken legs to be able to supply even a couple of food trucks. Um, and so at one point we were using four different farms and we were begging them for more chicken legs. So it is, it's challenging. Um, and what, what we found was eventually we found another business who would, um, we, we went out and found another business who could buy the breasts so that that would allow us to take the legs and it made sense from the farmer's perspective. So it wouldn't be left with, yeah. you know, left with the rest. And everyone's happy. Yeah. Just, just um, out of interest, why, why is it that it's, less profitable for the farmer once they've split it is there is it just that there's sort of waste in the system there they can't sell it for free range chickens Mm. they sell much better as a whole chicken Mm. rather than uh, a breast because it makes the breast really expensive so from a sort of i suppose um demand perspective if you're going into a butcher perception wise you probably would spend a bit more on a whole chicken um, whereas if you're buying the legs and the breasts separately, the carcass ends up as waste. And so they have to charge, perception wise, you're paying more per kilo for the breasts and, and the legs. And I think mm. that's why they always found it challenging to sell them in no, that format. That, that makes sense. It was just, yeah. uh, just wondered. That was, yeah, interesting. Um, do they, I was wondering, I mean, not to sort of label the thing on suppliers, but I'm really, I'm, I'm interested in this because obviously you've built this, this sort mm. of, you know, you built this up with this ethos um, kind of from the ground up. When you're dealing with, you know, you said four chicken suppliers to sort of, to, to meet your demand. Did you, if you're dealing with, you know, they might be smaller producers to, to achieve these ethical mm-hmm. ambitions. Did you have to give them sort of certain assurances as well, you know, that you would that you would take a certain amount, for example, or was it always, you know, that they? It was they, always, you, yeah. It was always, <laughs> it we was were always we were always begging them for more legs. Right. You know, it wasn't the other way. No, <laughs> no, it was. We were always begging them for more legs, and mm. we never had, you know, we never had enough really, and uh, it actually forced us at one point to buy, you know, some from a source that we didn't know exactly we were told they were from one farm. We weren't a hundred percent convinced in it, in, in that sort of, in that particular supply chain, which felt really uncomfortable. So, you know, I think being able to have a fully sustainable supply chain is always a journey. Mm -hmm. You're never going to be exactly where you want to be, um, from day one or even from year three, you know, it's a journey to become, more connected and to become more robust did you just so before you know before we move on but just uh, just staying with suppliers for a minute did you often find when you started investigating um supply chains that, that, that there was a sort of gap between what people i either a gap that you could prove or just a sort of you know things not quite stacking up between what people said they were and what they they actually were um well, like I, I just mentioned, there was mm. one supplier I'm not going to mention, no, but, no, but, but that was, was that a, was that a sort of an unusual thing, I suppose, as well. They they marketed themselves as having free range, mm. um, ethical meat, but I'm pretty convinced that they had stuff. They always had availability, which is always something that you need to be a little bit suspicious about. Mm. Um, and they weren't actually a farm; they were someone. They were a supplier that was connected to farms. 
So, so yeah, you do, you know, for me, that didn't stack up and it's a gut feeling guess, thing. Yeah. If the gut's not feeling right, you kind of, and you feel yeah, uncomfortable about there. that. But mm. yeah, when you, um, you know, when you visit the farms, you, and you start talking to people and asking lots of questions, you really, you get the answers and you feel that you're getting a proper insight. Maybe, maybe we could, um, I'd love to ask you a bit about Street Kitchen because it's, um, you know, things, things have moved on since there, which, yeah. which we will talk about in a minute, but the, um, you know, Street Kitchen was, was your sort of first, um, first move into this, into the sort of delivering food in this ethical way to the public. Um, I mean, it was, it was sort of conceived as a pilot project and it, it became quite established before you decided to change the model. Was it? Was it a surprise that it became established in that way? It's really hard. To, uh, looking back on it, I just did it. And it's one of those things that when you go from being an employee to an entrepreneur, you just take that leap of faith. And then when you're operating that business, you don't really have time to think about what you're doing. You just have to operate yeah, <laughs> yeah you have to operate you know mm. you have to make sure that you're, you've got the food there and and operating a street food business is from a logistical point of view really really complex versus a restaurant in a restaurant i was going to say you you um you and your your partner jen you both, yeah. you both had you know high level restaurant backgrounds yeah. but it, it is quite a different it's a different sort of business isn't it yeah did, it's I much mean, harder what did you not what did you not know going into it is it were there is it just logistics or yeah basically running street food business is basically half your time you spend loading and unloading and like a much less amount of time cooking right so um in a restaurant you get your deliveries your kitchen is in one place you prep and produce your food you cook it your customers come to you in a street food business you you know you sort of prep as much as you can in a kitchen somewhere, then you have to deliver all of that stuff to where your customers are. So you're kind of going to your customer. Um, and you, you know, like someone forgets to pack the pesto, then it's like a panic to get back to the kitchen to pick up the pesto. And it's like, you know, it's, so it makes it quite a complex, um, challenging thing to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I mean, operating it was was quite challenging, and I I was I was really pleased that people loved the flavour of the food, mm. and that was the primary thing really. And all of the the you know sourcing of the ingredients was really something that was very important to me, but not something that I wanted to shove down people's throats. And for the people that actually were interested they could check it out and we were really robust. And for the people who just wanted a tasty lunch, they didn't, you know, that it was a tasty lunch and that was it. For a street food operation, it was quite a broad menu. Um, I, I thought, you know, maybe sort of restaurant, a restaurant sort of influence on it or whether it was driven by what you wanted to do. But um, did that, was it a conscious thing? I suppose a lot of street food businesses have, you know, become, sort of laser focus on maybe one thing you know they sort of pulled pork or like ribs or whatever you know it as as kind of singular as that was it a sort of a decision at the outset like we're going to do a menu a menu give people choice and and go that direction well but yeah i mean 
Jen and I uh, went out for dinner one night. We'd been talking for about a month about what we, what we should put on the menu. And we really just didn't have a clue what we wanted to put on the menu. One night, went out for dinner and it just clicked and we wrote a menu. And uh, on that original menu, we had, um, we just said, what are, what are some basic kind of brasserie style dishes that are reasonably healthy that someone at lunchtime would, would want to buy versus buying a sandwich, a pret or you know, some sort of heated up item somewhere. What what would what would be your ideal lunch that you'd that you'd either eat like sitting in the park or go back to your de- whatever it is, but you would eat that and it would be a healthy box of food, but substantial enough to make you feel like you'd had a good lunch. Uh, so what is that? And so the original menu was very much like a simple bistro. So we had uh, braised beef with celeriac puree and some roasted veg, roasted carrots. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a, a, a fillet of salmon that had been smoked, that we smoked and then cooked. So it's hot, hot smoked salmon, essentially, with crushed potatoes, beetroots and horseradish. And they were the sort of things that you would, in a bistro, put on a lunch menu if you're if you're operating like a brasserie or bistro. And I think that's that was the sort of starting point of mm-hmm. how we devised the menu. And then... Um, and then we created, I think in the first month, uh, essentially like a pimped up Caesar salad with this amazing crispy chicken leg, crushed potatoes and, and, and this dressing made with old that, that was the thing that became your sort of biggest salad. Well, it's so the thing it, it became, it least. became the dish that we couldn't take off the menu <laughs> because when, when we took it off the menu, like all of our customers would just be complaining about it. Yeah. They would literally get really, really upset. It's like, where's the crispy chicken today? So we ended up having always having two meat dishes on. We'd have the crispy chicken every day. And then we would have a second dish, which would either be beef or slow-cooked shoulder of lamb or slow-cooked shoulder of pork or whatever it was. But the crispy chicken was was just one of those dishes that the dressing was a Caesar dressing, but made with old Winchester cheese. Right. And it just was one of those flavor, And it had pickled red onions. And croutons so it had like the pickly flavors and this amazing old winchester dressing and the crispy chicken legs that was really sort of moist. texture in there as well the sort of yeah and it just worked and, and you know so this we, is why you need the chicken legs yeah you, this yeah. is why we needed so many chicken legs and <clears throat> so yeah so that and and that kind of led we always had a fish dish we always had a second meat dish we always had a vegetarian dish which was whatever veg- vegetables in season mm-hmm. so um yeah so that was kind of what led the menu so as a as a public um catering operation it it is it is uh, no more it's it's evolved what's um what yeah is it now? so so basically what what happened was um over the five years that I, the that i was running street kitchen um there became a growing, well, I suppose street food became really trendy. And so um, what happened was within companies would want street food at their private events. And so they would, we, we started getting lots of inquiries to go and serve our street food or a variation of our street food at uh, a corporate event, for example. And that that became a, a growing component of the business. And it grew to a stage where actually um i was i became uh my time i couldn't give 
both parts of the business enough time. I was dilute, my time was diluted and I wasn't really doing justice to either part of the business. And so I took a view that actually, um, although the whole of the street kitchen and street food retail um, business had been such an amazing experience and really kind of taught me about running a business and et cetera, that actually I really wanted to focus on the event side of the business, which was financially was at the time proving to be more, just much more financially um, um, made more money. So, so, and I decided, right, I don't want to be split in between these two different businesses and really kind of fragmented and not really running either one very well. And so I decided to go back to my, um, to the original ethos that we set up of the food initiative and try and bring sustainable food to the events world and to really um, make a point of being uh, not only being super creative, but also bringing a cool, funky street food edge. And at the same time as that delivering, you know, proper traceability and sustainability to the, um, to the event world. Mm. So, <clears throat> The, the food initiative as, as, a, as an organization sort of existed before Street Kitchen. It basically, it, it was, it was, that was your kind it of existed initial... as a philosophy, okay. I would say. And there were two sort of basic principles. One, that you know the guys that produce your food. And number two, that they have sustainability as their core ethos. Mm. And that was the philosophy that almost um, was that Street Kitchen became the first expression of that philosophy. Mm-hmm. And now, it is now it's the food initiative is is the business that delivers the yeah so 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 i decided to change the name because uh, a few reasons really one one that was the on the events side we were only getting street food inquiries and i want and we were we would we wanted to be more than just a street food event operator Mm. um and also because street kitchen didn't really communicate the fact that we we have this sustainable sourcing policy and how how much we uh, how much time and energy we spent on really um galvanizing these direct supply chains so i wanted that to be a really important component of the new business and i think that's why i decided to call uh, the new business the food initiative so is is so the, the sort of sustainability of the supply chain that's much more front and center you you were saying you know the street kitchen is the supply chain was was there if people wanted to investigate it. You, but if they wanted to just, but it was kind food, of it, it was, was kind it, of the yeah. biggest secret in the world. Yeah, which was really stupid because it was actually a massive USP. Mm. Um, and I was, I suppose, I'd been a bit. My my mindset was, there's so many people who are greenwashing their businesses that. I don't want to be one of those that are shouting about it and it becomes... Just, just want to do it yeah. and, and just have it be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually looking back on it, it's a bit stupid because it really it was a USP. And so moving forward, um, you know, I want, I'm putting more time and energy in that journey of making my supply chain more robust. Mm. For example, with vegetables, it's quite hard because right. unless you your volume that you consume... Um, can would be a truckload, then you're never going to get a farm to deliver vegetables to you. They're mm. not going to deliver a couple of boxes of vegetables. So on the vegetable side, it had always been more challenging. And so now I'm really focusing on spending some time working out how I can incorporate 
I'd love to be 100% organic um, and be able to say use mostly British produce when it's in season and when we're using uh, Spanish, French or Italian produce that it comes from an organic farm and that I know that because I trust the guys that are so the veg side is is really ch- and in the UK they they have a a time of the year in the spring which is called the hungry gap and basically it's the time when all the root vegetables run out and before any of the shoots have started and that's a period where it's really challenging to get sustainable british produce to support a a food business so you have to import mm. from from europe that has a longer seasons so are you um what's the reception like among the you know the the events people that you're putting this more sort of more front and center do you do you are you finding people kind of buying events on that basis that they definitely they i mean we do we do we did like three events for adidas last year and um on the brief from adidas it says you have to have at least 50 percent of the of the ingredients of your food have to be sustainable now in what does that really mean and how can you how would you ever be able to judge that really really hard but the fact that we could then go back and say actually we get this from here this from there meant that for them that was a massive tick on that box so to me that shows that big corporates are extending their corporate social responsibility um, agendas into into their purchasing Mm. into their consumption which is quite interesting and also on the other side we use vegware who are an amazing packaging company so all of their packaging is compostable but also they try and produce as much as they can within the uk some of the other packaging companies will import from china so obviously the carbon footprint Mm. involved in getting that over from china is so those and it's really hard as a consumer to really be able to quantify the impact of your consumption choices it's hugely difficult isn't it if you unless you are going to sort of go and put wellies on and get down to the farm i mean almost impossible but definitely from a like you know the fact that we the fact that we i mean everyone uses compostable packaging now because it's so available but the fact that you know we make sure that there isn't a single thing that we use that isn't compostable so at an event all the food waste, all the packaging, all goes into a compostable bin bag, and that can be sent off to be to like a food waste processing plant. Is people really love that? Our clients really love that because, from their perspective, it's um, they feel like by using us, mm. they are you know supporting us a a, a, you know, a sort of good. Um, uh, a business that's that's being responsible and thinking about stuff like waste management. You know, you, you started out into street food, like you said, sort of. Uh, it kind of became trendy while you were while you were in it. So, so you, you were setting up in kind of 2011. You know, so you really kind of rode that street food wave. Do you think it's still as good of an option for for if you were setting something up now? If somebody's sort of thinking, you know, I've got this concept, I want to test it, I want to, I want to build a supply chain, you know, work all this stuff out. Do you think it's still as good an option Definitely. in 2018? Definitely. I mean, even more so. When we started, we had to beg people to get somewhere to trade. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to Spitalfields that now has 
God knows how many people, uh, street food traders operating there. And they were like, no way would we put a street food truck on Spitalfields. Really? In New Spitalfields Market. Just in, in, in old, seven years sorry, ago. Sorry, Old Spitalfields, okay. yeah. No way. They were like, what, what are you talking about? Like street food truck on Old Spitalfields? No way. Mm. And, so, and now you've got, so I think. I suppose they're imagining sort of burger van or, or yeah. you know, the kind of associations changed, hasn't it? Yeah, they? for so, sure. And it became, you know, it became, I think we were pretty much the first truck to get a permanent spot in the city on Broadgate. And it took, I mean, for them, that was a massive leap of faith for Broadgate to allow a street food truck on there. But I think that came down to the fact that Jeanne and I were professional chefs and that we had a Airstream trailer, which is a sexy looking truck. Um, and that we were doing a menu that they tried and they thought would be, would actually provide a really good service for the the occupiers of their offices and now you know you go down to broadgate now and there's there are specific spaces for street food trucks mm. you know and you've got containers on broadgate which i mean when we started if you'd said can i put four four containers on finsbury avenue square they would have just probably kicked you out of the office so it's really interesting yeah. how things have changed so going back to your question what i would say is that if you um I think it's a really great way of uh, testing a brand, building a brand um, without needing to get a massive investment. So, you know, conventionally, if you want to open a restaurant site, you're talking maybe £300,000 minimum plus rent deposit, et cetera. With with rents kind of going up and up. I mean, it's it's a huge... Whereas you, you can kind of, you know, you can pick up a... A, a, some sort of um, vehicle for a couple of grand, do it up yourself and start making a product and building a brand. Um, and you can um, you can find somewhere to trade because there's so much opportunity to trade. So yeah, I mean, if you look at Bleaker Burgers, they started in a truck, they now have a couple of sites. If you look at there's a business called Rollawala, which uh, are Indian wraps. Mm-hmm. It was actually really interesting. It was a guy who, uh, Mark, um, who worked around the corner from us and used to come and buy lunches from us. Oh, really? And I got to know him that way, that that way. And he started his first product development with one of my chefs in our kitchen, in our prep kitchen. Right. And um, and he was buying chicken from one of the really amazing farms that we had down in uh, Piper's farm down in Devon, who he's a super visionary farmer. Um, and he started, now he has, I think he's opening his fourth or fifth site. Um, so I, I really believe it's a great way for young entrepreneurs to build a brand and a product, a test mm. road test, a, a, a brand and a product um, with a view to then starting a business. It got quite manic, I would say, you know, the, the sort of the hype around street food as a concept, you know, when you just think that everybody was piling in on it, every shopping center, corporate, you know, people were doing versions of that weren't really street food, but sort of had the look and feel, you know, there, there, there was really a, um, I, I get the sense it's sort of slightly calm down from there. I don't know what you, what you think, but, um, do you, do you think the hype has sort of peaked around that and maybe what's left will just will be quality um it's really hard to know i think 
I think what what probably has changed is that um, I think people thought, right, we can make those money out of this street food trend, uh, whether that be landlords or or people starting up street food businesses. And um, one, when you actually start setting up a street food business, unless you've got a great product that actually hits the right price point for the right people in that area, then people won't come back or at least not enough people will come back to really sustain that business. So I think that process in itself weeds out the quality or at least the products that are right at the right price for that, the right market. Mm. Um, and also landlords, I think have realized that you can't, you can't charge uh, a street food operator the same um, rent that you might think about charging someone who's operating one of your sites on your on your estate because it's so it's like you know operating a bricks and mortar site on your estate versus a piece of pavement you know that I think that they didn't know how much to charge for that pitch and mm. I think they probably started off too high and they've now probably adjusted to a level which makes it work for everyone so I think that there have been those sorts of adjustments within the business, which has allowed the businesses to become more sustainable and for those pitches for the landlord to be more sustainable as well. So you think it'll sort of perhaps at the level that it's at, you know, find, find a sort of level where it can just be part of the landscape and 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 a good option for people? I think so. Don't, I know. don't think it's going anywhere. I suppose I, that's the question, you know, whether it, it feels like it's it's sort of, um, the height of the scene the hype has maybe died but it feels yeah. like it feels like it's sort of it hasn't fallen away with it you know they're, they're street food and pop-ups and those you yeah. know, they, they are still they're there as a as a hopefully a permanent part of things i think so i think what's happened is the 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 fact that 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 there's been a movement meant that um it has it has allowed young entrepreneurs to set up a business because there's been a, um, a a vehicle for them to do that. Whereas historically, they might never have done that. They might have carried on working in those restaurants or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I think that it, it's popular. It's popular enough that there's no reason for it not to continue. Um, f- from, you know, I get literally so many emails like saying we really miss your street kitchen lunches like you ever this is this is like a year later (laughs) we get emails just saying oh i'm sitting at my desk just dreaming about your crispy chicken box and you're (laughs) just like and so it's it's very it's a lovely feeling because you feel like okay we really hit the nail on the head with that Mm. but it just shows that i think on the whole when you've got a single owner operator they're cooking fresh food they're cooking it fresh and serving it, whereas multiple outlet retail businesses on the whole are reheating and reheated food is never going to taste as good as um, food that's just been cooked on the spot. Plus, you're going to have, <clears throat> I think there's really something about having the person, you know, the, the person that you're buying the food from is the person that sort of has seen this the whole way through, as opposed to, you know, if you've got multi-site retail, you've got a manager who yeah. even, you know, they might be a very, very good manager, but they might, they're not, they're not that person For who's sure. sort of a hundred percent in yeah. it. It's, uh... so you, you are 
finished with Street Kitchen, the retail side of it. I mean, when you get those letters saying crispy chicken box, please, it, it doesn't sound like it sounds like that's that's a lovely thing to read. But you're moving, you're focused on, yeah. on the event side of things. What, what, what are the plans from here then? Where, where do you want to take the food initiative? So my, uh, the, the areas within the event world that I'm most interested in um, are the, the people that want to, or the, the clients that want to um, uh, create an event that really communicates um, the idea or the concept that they want to portray to their guests. And I think, I suppose one of the things that I missed when I was running Street Kitchen is that I wasn't cooking. I wasn't really connected. I was just more administrative, which, and I'd always loved being the guy on the, on the truck taking the orders. And obviously when you're running the business, you can't do that. And what I've found, and so actually I found that I was not that I was not that happy really. I was disconnected from the customers. I wasn't cooking anymore. I was just doing administration. Um, and so now what what the new business has allowed me to do is really to use my creativity, which I think is one of my really big assets, to be able to transform the idea or the big idea that someone wants to achieve through their event um, into the way the food is served the way, the type of food. Um, and, and, and so, so I think within the event world, quite often you just get a, you, you say, right, we've got an event on 200 people. Uh, and then can you send me your menus? And we say, no, we can't send you your menus because we don't work like that, but we'd love to chat to you about your event, really understand your event, understand what you want to achieve. And then we'll come up with a bespoke menu and a way of serving it. That's going to help you, deliver the big idea of your event to your customers and so i think for me that's really really exciting because it's kind of it 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 it, uh, is very much aligned with the idea of a sourcing policy which is considered you consider the event every event for its own unique um, um, facets and you deliver something that's exceptional basically Mm -hmm. so that's the direction i'm taking the business is there a, a sort of, without naming names, but is, is there a sort of an example maybe you could give of like how how you've interpreted a brief like that? If a client's come to you and said, I don't know, what, what have they yeah, said to you? Yeah, no, yeah. So for example, and- for one, uh, an example of that is um, we uh, did an event last year for Glenmorangie Whiskey. Mm. And uh, uh, when we, when we uh, met them, they said uh, the, so whenever brands like that um uh do create initiatives they often have a theme so the theme of this event was called beyond the cask and so it's really cool event they basically found a bicycle a handmade bicycle uh you i wouldn't call them manufacturer but maker um in france and they basically gave them the whiskey barrels that had come to the end of their life and they said can you turn this into a bike and so um these crazy french guys turned these whiskey barrels into the most beautiful handmade wooden bikes really sort of 
every yeah top to tail well wood. the frame <laughs> essentially wow. the frame but obviously the wheels mm. and everything else but it was yeah it was it a frame a beautiful thing. it was a frame yeah, yeah. stunning and so they came and said look we're doing this event and it's it's the launch of this uh, beyond the cask and so we said right okay how can we bring that into the food um and so we thought it would be really nice to use scottish ingredients um and we actually work with an amazing salmon farm called Loch Duet, who uh, are probably the most forward-thinking, advanced, sustainable farm in the world, uh, f- uh, salmon farm in the world. You know, they uh, the fish are really natural because they they swim in the sea, so they're not in like ponds where they can where they become quite dirty, and you know they're swimming in the sea. So the natural movement of water through the f- the, the fish are swimming in cleans the where the area you know where they are so really really interesting business so so we decide right let's take salmon because it's from scotland okay how can we incorporate the whiskey casks into the food so we said well a natural thing would be to smoke so we said right can you supply us with some chips from these whiskey barrels and um and then we're going to smoke the salmon with the smoke from the whiskey barrel chips Mm. and um so for that one of the pieces of items of food we did was a piece of uh hot smoked salmon and uh, we had a glass dome and it's you know it's quite a theater theater with the yeah taking it off theater exactly i mean you know it's you people have been doing that for years Mm. but but it was quite nice that the concept followed through from the from the um from the whiskey barrels into the smoking of the food from a local ingredient. And the client absolutely loved it. And it works really well. And it tasted great, but it worked really well. And also we incorporated whiskey, a different Glenmorangie whiskey into every single food item. Mm. So we had, we did a really amazing uh, wild mushroom uh, little pastry, pativier it's called, a French. And we had uh, some um, Boisleret puree and we put some whiskey into the mushroom mix and it was just so delicious you know only like a hint mm. and then all the desserts with the <clears throat> smoked um chocolate and whiskey mousse which was delicious so that that really was us rather than just giving them a menu we said to them right what do you what's the event what do you want to achieve what's the big idea and they sort of gave us this thing and we took it away and we said okay well let's do this and we did that we did it for the tasting and and, and then that really seemed to that allowed uh, the big idea of their event to extend into the food and the service style and mm. that's really that's extremely rewarding I, I get the sense from you you know yeah. the way that you're talking that that's how much you love doing that that's yeah. um oh, that's fantastic it's really rewarding and mm. it's from a from a i suppose creative um outlet perspective from my personal point of view but also from the fact that the client really loved it and they they were they were so happy that we had um been able to capture that that element in the food and actually it was quite interesting because at that event the um we were making these little pastries at the event and and they you know one of the senior guys at uh glenmorangie came over and said it's just so nice to be see you with a you know rolling the pastry out and making these little things you know often when i go to catered events it's just all it comes from behind a curtain and it's yeah just, yeah i mean they it was we were we were in the back of house yes yeah, yeah but but they just they just said it felt like 
it was really proper artisan food, which was really nice. Yeah, that's good. That's exactly what you want to hear, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I tend to ask some more sort of general questions towards the end of end of the interview. Um, there's a few that I thought I'd, I'd I'll pick a couple out at random, but um, one that I really like to ask, and I think I'd, I would like to ask you, is if if you could pick up the phone and speak to your 20 year old self what would you say to him interesting um ah oh, I, I mean i suppose i suppose over the years there are times when opportunities arise and um i think as you get older you learn to to grasp those opportunities when they come along and when you're younger, you kind of think, oh, you know, it's another opportunity, you know, that's something. So I think I would say to like, when the window opens, jump through it, don't think about it, would be one of the big things. Because I feel like there are some, um, when I was, um, before I became an executive chef, when I was a head chef, there was an opportunity to open a restaurant with, um, there was a guy who was an investor. And looking back on it, I wish I'd done it because I love restaurants. You know, I, I love what I've done. And I think, you know, what I've, what we've achieved with Street Kitchen was quite special. But looking back on it, I think at that point in my life, I would have loved to have been an owner, chef owner of a restaurant. So I think, I think that's one big thing. And then the other big thing I suppose is, um, that one of the big things I've learned is that everyone, um, there are different people have different skill sets in life and, uh, you can never be good at everything and you have to, you know, really, understand what you're really good at and what you're not good at and the things that you're really good at you sort of spend most of your time on and the things that you're not great at you spend least of your amount of time on so those mm. i think those would be the two sort of key things that i'd be telling myself wait so it sounds like that's what you were saying with the, you know the creativity now like that yeah that's where you want to be yeah and that's yeah no i do i think that's great advice um I'd like to ask you another one. If thinking about food in the UK, and however you want to sort of interpret that, if I say success, is there someone that you think of in particular, and and if so, why? Um, well, certainly in terms of uh, on the on the supplier side, uh, there's there's a guy, there's a man called Guy Watson, who is the founder and um, an owner of Riverford Organic, which is a essentially riverford is a box ski it was the one i'm not sure whether it was the first but definitely one of the first fully organic box schemes in the uk and he started he was a um, investment banker in the city uh, absolutely hated it but had grown up i think his family had a farm in devon so at some point in his life he just said screw this you know it's not for me this city life yeah. not for me headed down and started with a wheelbarrow to grow vegetables and um and ended up having one of the biggest organic box scheme businesses in the uk and what what is amazing about guy is that however the big the business has grown how successful he's been um he his his dedication to the, his ethos and his vision has never faltered. And, you know, when, often when businesses grow and they start to make money, you know, often that, 
that element of the business will dictate the the decision making. Whereas Guy is a, he's the sort of man who, as long as he can jump on a surfboard and go surfing, and he's got like a bus on the beach that he stays on when he goes surfing, as long as he can do that and um, at the weekend and get you know and and feel uh, comfortable when he goes to sleep at night that his that his business is um, is living up to his vision then he's happy and that is really really rare he's a truly visionary uh, amazing amazing guy and he's been a massive he was a massive inspiration I met him uh, quite early on in my journey I think actually the first time that Richard and I went out to meet a supplier was down to Riverford we had lunch with Guy and I just thought this guy's brilliant and we've always kept in touch since then it sounds like a Someone who's really got their kind of their, awesome. their priorities just he's awesome. exactly right. Yeah. Uh, one more, why why not? Um, what is your favourite thing to do that's got nothing to do with food? Um, that's a really hard one. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's all food. It's all food. Yeah, I think my life just revolves around food. Um, you know, I can't really think of much. When I grew, you know, my whole family uh, was very. It was my my grandma um, grew up in Paris, so and she was always a brilliant cook. My aunt went to Cordon Bleu, studied cooking, and has always been cook. So, in in our family, everything's always been about food, and so I suppose when I'm not sort of cooking it, and I'm thinking about right, what farm can I go and visit, or what restaurant can I go and try or mm. what new recipe can I, can I be, be inspired by which is probably a really crap answer <laughs> no not at all that's it's um but obviously you know when you when you answer. um it's quite interesting actually when you uh, start to have a family so I've got a son four-year-old son um you obviously they become the center of your life but um, but food still comes into it. So when I was making him baby food, I'd always make sure that I loved Sunday evenings because it would be my baby food session, and I'd you know get organic vegetables, turn them into purees. But I would put garlic and olive oil in the butternut squash puree because I'm just like this kid's got a gonna gonna have good food one day. When he, <laughs> he's gonna when he's, he's gonna have a palate. Yeah. Yeah. Or I mm. would you know put sage in the sweet potato puree. And so, yeah, so I, I suppose, yeah, food just comes into everything. It's food. No, it's a great answer. It really is. Um, and I think probably a great a great point to leave it on is I'd just like to say thank you. you know, it's been really, really, really enjoyable to sit down and, sort of, and talk like this with you. And, um, you know, thank you for your time. Not at all. Um, it's, I mean, it's just lovely that you, you know, that you're interested to hear about it. So, yeah, really, right. thanks so much for your time, take, taking the time to come and see me. Well, it was my pleasure. Um, thank you to, you know, the people listening as well. Um, you know, thank you for your time listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Thanks.